This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. This episode is presented by Happy Farm Botanicals. Happy Farm Botanicals is a leader in custom solutions for prestige brands specializing in non-toxic and natural formulations. Hi, I'm Tina Hedges. I'm the founder of Lolly Beauty. And for me, it's a matter of trash. Sustainability. I know, I know, everyone's talking about it. Everyone says they're doing it, and you may be tired of hearing it. I'm Kelly Kovac, the founder of Beauty Matter. And sustainability can't just be another fleeting beauty trend. It must become a mandate. It has to become the new normal, and we all have a role to play. The beauty industry has been part of the pollution problem that got us into this world's on fire moment we're living in now. We also need to be part of the solution. It's a matter of changing the business paradigm from growth and profit above all else to building conscious businesses that are built on profit and purpose. Beauty disruptor Tina Hedges, and I don't use the word disruptor lightly, is the founder and CEO of Lolly, the world's first zero-waste beauty brand. She's building what I believe the future of beauty will look like. Sustainable, transparent, and accountable. Tina, so you have an interesting background. You sort of have this in early on in your career, sort of a very big business, kind of big beauty business, traditional background. But you've also married that with some really big entrepreneurial successes. So you're one of those rare breeds that kind of can live in both worlds. What is it that you think your experience from big beauty brought to your entrepreneurial pursuits? So I actually think, Kelly, that the combination of having worked in big beauty and dipping my toe and then getting quite involved in the startup world, that combination is a perfect synergy because in my early days when it counted most, I learned the discipline, the rigor, the responsibility, and the best practices from the world's leaders. I mean, let's face it, going through L'Oreal and Estee Lauder is like getting your PhD Mm -hmm. in beauty, right? Forget Harvard Business School. Who needs that? (laughs) And so there was a rigor and a discipline in how to look at the business opportunity, how to frame it, how to analyze the financials, how to have rigor in the innovation cycle. And all of that sort of gave me a framework. But that could also be incredibly limiting, right? It can put people into boxes. There can be so much process and so much rigor that it undoes the opportunity. Mm -hmm. So on the other side, jumping into the startup world, I learned that be ready to fail, fail fast. Don't be afraid of failing, which is the antithesis in big beauty, right? Right. I mean, you don't go into... (laughs) You don't fail. (laughs) You you don't fail and you don't go into a meeting with the chairman of the board or the executive committee and say, hey, guys, relax. We just failed, but we learned a lot. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So um, I think sort of finding that perfect balance between those two frameworks, um, discipline and opportunistic endeavors and just sort of finding that balance. I think that Mm -hmm. really helped me a lot. Is there one particular thing that you think most sort of 
entrepreneurs or sort of beauty startups lack that big beauty business employs, you know, because there's a lot of, you know, indie beauty is sort of considered a huge trend right now, although I would say that it's always been part of the business cycle. And a lot of people say, you know, big beauty doesn't move fast enough. Big beauty, you know, there's too much process driven, but there's still the beauty industry. So is there like one thing that you could pull from your experience, kind of from big beauty that you think entrepreneurs in the beauty industry should employ in their businesses that they kind of don't right now? I think what I find really shocking when I look at the explosion of indie beauty brands is the lack of responsibility in really understanding formulation. It's like, you know, someone wakes up one day and gets enamored with the idea of reinventing a category and goes to a very fancy creative agency who does a millennial pink tube with uh, gold foil, you know, printing on it. And then they go to a third-party manufacturer and get a formula off the shelf. And then they're like, we have a beauty brand. And then they get lots of, you know, venture capital funding. And there's a lack of rigor and understanding of the formula and what really works and what's really in it. And sometimes they don't mean to be misrepresenting what's in Mm -hmm. the product. They just don't have the knowledge and the understanding. And I think that Big Beauty does this very well. It really trains its marketing and product innovators um, to work along this with the scientists and the PhDs and really understand how products are developed, what goes into them. So I think that knowledge and that expertise is really missing in Indie Beauty. And I think it's a disservice to the customer. And now we're seeing it also, by the way, in packaging yep. and the greenwashing of packaging because these brands don't know. They're sitting there talking about bioplastics as being, you know, compostable. Yeah, Well, yeah, it degrades in the ground, but it's leaching microplastics into the food supply. Yeah. So so you think it's it's really that, you know, when you're in big beauty, there is no wiggle room. You have to validate everything where, you know, indie beauty kind of flows a little by the seat of their pants, either intentionally or otherwise. My mother used to say to me when I was growing up, the paper holds everything. And just because you write it doesn't mean it's true. Right. So I think we're seeing that, right? You know, you can scan all these websites and the claims they're making or their social media platforms. And I mean, I'm shocked to see brands that are saying they're zero waste or they're organic or they're clean when you just peruse the ingredient list or you look at their packaging and you know that that's not correct. But there is a lack of governing body. I mean, right. I'm very, very grateful to partner with MadeSafe because at least on the formula side and the ingredient, granular ingredient side, because they look at such depth, they are, I think, the leading authority on a formula being made safe, but there's not an equivalent in the sustainable packaging area. I mean, I would agree with you. I think the FTC has recently got involved in slapping a few hands. Yes. Both on claims and fake reviews. But do you feel that retailers need to play a role? Because, you know, I think, you know, when you sign on with a retailer, you sort of, you sign a disclaimer saying they're not responsible. 
But yet they're sort of perpetuating whatever the claims are, and not all of them actually require substantiation. And even though the FTC did sort of slap some hands, I mean, it really, you know, they didn't have to advise consumers that that the activity had happened. And the financial sum was really nominal in the scheme of things. So I don't know, is it a cost of doing business or is it really, you know, trying to to hold brands accountable? So it's a fascinating area to look at where do retailers um, play in the area of responsibility and claim validation and transparency. On the one hand, I and we're just beginning to dabble our toe into wholesale. And I've been um, asked to sign a few affidavits on vouching that we're a clean beauty brand. And when I look at what they're asking me to sign, it's so meaningless. It's like the frosting on the cake. Mm-hmm. And, you know, basically any brand could sign these affidavits. There, there's no weight to them. There's no really granular looking at what does it mean to be a zero waste or clean beauty brand. So then the difficulty for us is we're doing all the hard work, but brands with way more marketing dollars and ability to advertise or sample are making the same claims and the retailers are allowing them because either they don't know, they don't have an expert on the retail side Mm -hmm. to really help them dig down into what brands are really have the authority to make the claims they're making, right? So it's 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 an interesting conundrum. And, you know, I've had to have the conversation with myself of, you know, do I secretly write to Estee Laundry and have them do an expose and try to pull down my competitors? And, you know, I, I have a theory, don't build your happiness on someone else's unhappiness right. and cream rises to the top. And hopefully an educated consumer will be able to suss out what's real and what's not until we find a governing right. body. But you have sort of in the in the process of creating Lolly, you have found third parties to sort of substantiate and validate your entire supply chain. Yes. So they do exist, but they're not always sort of in the beauty realm. Yeah, right? we, we've done so much work and, and some of it we haven't even advertised yet, but we have a third party that looks at all our formulations on on the ingredient level and tests them for everything from pesticides to contaminants to potency. Prior to us putting our stamp on the final product, we have Made Safe that then also looks at the ingredient level from the nanoparticle size to where it was sourced from um, to how it was formulated to put their stamp. Then we also have a platform that looks at our entire supply chain to assess the risk of people trafficking, because even if you think you're getting fair trade ingredients, that co-op may be getting some parts of their supply chain from areas that have um, people trafficking. So it's a very, very complex ecosystem. And we've tried to seek out the experts in, in different fields to help us um, and then on the sustainable packaging side, this, the same thing. So let's go back to sort of your your reason for being and sort of how you 
came to launch Lolly. There is the saying that when one door closes, another door opens. And I know in your case, you've talked about the fact that the universe kept slamming doors in your face and that the last thing you wanted to do was launch a beauty brand. But I know you're also very spiritual person. And I would say, you know, if this is such a thing, a beauty shaman. But can you share a little about why you launched Lolly? And there is sort of a really beautiful mystical side that is really intertwined. And I know that you don't really talk about it very often, but have found a really niche audience, which is interesting. Yes. Um, so the whole, uh, there's a bit of a commercialization happening right now with spirituality and skincare. And, you know, you can walk into some of the retailers now or online and see everyone has, which really gets to me, the $2 crystal facial roller that you can get in Chinatown, you know, and charging $60 for them. And wow, isn't this cool? Like now I'm getting crystals with my skincare. Um, For me, I have a tremendous sense of respect and um, a feeling of responsibility to the spiritual side. Um, my story begins where I grew up in Jamaica, um, West Indies. I was born there. So I grew up in the Blue Mountains where natural ingredients were being plucked in, in my house and made into all sorts of topical and um, ingestible remedies. I have an early memory of my mom taking like a tin bucket that you'd wash clothes in pulling mangoes and stripping me naked and sticking me in the bucket with mangoes and letting me eat, but actually letting the juice of the mangoes go all the way down my body. That's an enzyme Mm -hmm. cleanser, you know? So, um, plus it really stains clothes. So it's good to, (laughs) it's good to eat them naked. Um, but I actually, my, the deeper part of the story is that I actually died when I was four years old. I drowned in a swimming pool and it's a story I don't tell that often. And I left my body and went up to whatever you want to think it is, God, creator, whatever word you you have for it, and came back and have complete recall of that. And um, since then, I've been a natural intuitive. I channel and I actually see the energy of things. I know how to make the invisible visible. I think that's why I went into product um, development because I really see the future and I can see the future really well with products. Mm -hmm. But I also understand the energy of things. And so for me, when I create um, product, I look at the vibrancy, the spiritual meaning, the emotional meaning, the color impact, everything that goes into that alchemy. And so it's interesting, our customers who are very loyal definitely feel when they use a product that there's something different and they can't put their finger on it. And I think it's because of that sort of spiritual aspect. Mm -hmm. And I believe we need to bring more consciousness back into beauty. When I was in big beauty at some of the, the companies I mentioned previously, we would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, on consumer research. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was always uh, a given is you could take the same product and if you put a fragrance in it that the consumer liked and you put a fragrance in it that the consumer didn't like, the one with the the more pleasurable scent Mm -hmm. 
would always test better for product efficacy. Oh, interesting. There's no difference in the formula except the scent. But they would say, it does better for my lines and wrinkles. Is my fit skin is smoother. I look more radiant. One could argue, well, maybe they're using it more because they like the fragrance. Mm-hmm. But they were being paid to use it twice a day, every day. Right. So I think that you cannot extract the emotional connection and the feeling that when something makes you happy, the impact it's going to have on you. And I think we have to bring that consciousness back into beauty. So can you talk about sort of the closing of doors that led you to ultimately just surrendering to the universe and launching Lolly? Yeah. So it was really- I know it was a hard time. It was a really hard time. Although, you know, every month feels like another roller coaster moment, just a, just different dynamics. But um, it was about, I want to say about five years ago when this all started. And I had just been in, at the time I was actually working in the beverage industry. And I launched a whole category in beverage called hangover prevention. Um don't ask me how I ended up in that. It's not like I get hangovers every night or something. But um, I, I really love innovative ideas. And I met the founder of this business at the time. And um, maybe I was seduced because I'd had an angel on the can. So uh, called the angel of mercy. So, um, I, you know, anything with an angel I love. Yeah. But um, I had gotten incredibly disenfranchised from beauty. I had a spiritual awakening where I felt that I had spent a decade and a half launching into the world millions of bottles and jars of plastic filled with 80 to 95% water and toxins and chemicals, and then telling the consumer that there was some natural ingredient in it. And when I thought about that, it just felt like I wasn't living my dharma, that that's not what I was supposed to be doing. What year was this? Really, actually, about 2014, 2015, about four or five so it was years. before people were really talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And and that consciousness just came from, you know, a personal sort of quest. I was getting more into my energy healing work. And so looking more at the totality of my impact and how could I try and do a healing session on someone, but on the other side, make $20,000 by creating another um, double-walled PET cream, you know, lotion mm-hmm. or jar and selling it $125 right. with crap, crap in it. Sorry, but that's what it is. <laughs> and so I, um, I had this moment of sort of a, a complete download of like, what are you doing? And you are really meant to be stirring up something way more magical and meaningful. And literally, it was one day that I just was was walking. I bought a juice. I walked into a retailer. I looked at the row of face oils. I said, why, you know, why would we be buying those products? They're all the same ingredient. It's all diluted, polluted, and overpackaged. And then I had this sort of vision moment of, wow, we need to deconstruct beauty, unbottle beauty, go back to the pure, powerful, and potent, living, organic, loving ingredients. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, that's the name, Lolly, living, organic, loving ingredients. Mm -hmm. And then I got that. I'm getting a chill telling you, actually, this is so funny. And, And then I, so I had the name and I had this vision of deconstructing beauty, but then I was like, okay, universe, what do I do with that? I have no money. I live in a 
studio apartment on the Upper East Side. I live from paycheck to paycheck to pay my rent and color my hair. Like, what are you expecting me to do with this? So it was like that nagging thought behind in your mind. But I kept sort of forging my way forward and trying to get consulting jobs. And all of a sudden, I couldn't get a consulting job. to, to Like, it was just the weirdest thing. I was like, how is that possible? Like, and so my income started drying up, which is really scary. And I got to a moment where I was just like, wow, I don't have anything to do. I don't have a project. I don't know where I'm going in my future. And then the idea of Lolly kept hovering and hovering Mm -hmm. and hovering. And all of a sudden I was like, well, what happens if I just try and launch it? And then I started going through the very rational, well, how am I going to pay for a website and how am I going to pay for inventory? this wasn't the first time that you've done an entrepreneurial venture. So you knew exactly what you're getting yourself into. Correct. I mean, I love those stories when people say, oh, I had $500 and now I have a $100 million business and I didn't take a cent. And, you know, there's always an underlying story to those stories that it isn't quite how they're portraying it because I'm sorry – You have to pay for ingredients and you have to pay for – and it's always more than you anticipate. And even if you have better sales than you anticipate, you're still going to have a cash flow issue. So I I could rationalize how difficult this was going to be and I – but I just was like, let me try. You know, what's the worst thing that can happen? I fail. Well, I'm already failing right now, so I might as well (laughs) fail larger. And um, and so I started in my Upper East Side apartment and I did a test and that the rest is history. I mean, I remember those early boxes and I can remember the conversations we had and I was like, oh, my God, she is really on to something. And I don't even think I kind of realized at the time sort of how big the mission was that that you were kind of that you were undertaking but you literally deconstructed not the, only the concept of beauty but like the entire supply chain yes like how difficult was that that was super difficult and it's funny, like where do you even start you know what kelly i actually remember those meetings and i remember being embarrassed bringing that <laughs> box to you and and feeling like mother's loving hands at home and well, it was hardly that but <laughs> I mean, anyone who can pull off sort of a collaboration in mothers helping hands at work with Alexander Wang is 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 not exactly like you know crafty Betty. Well, I think I think we did that through the back door. That story is so funny. It's it's worth another conversation. And um, but anyway, um, deconstructing the beauty industry and starting from how ingredients are sourced and looking at how could we be more sustainable from sourcing to product formulating to packaging to the experience of beauty, both in the consumer's home and at retail, and really looking at every single piece of that and how could we be as zero waste as possible, as sustainable as possible, and as powerful as possible. And I think the supply chain was Absolutely the hardest. And it's something I'm most proud of. We source every single ingredient. We have relationships with fair trade co-ops where we upcycle ingredients like our date nut seed oil from seven villages in Senegal, which because we're now upcycling an ingredient, the nut, the kernel of the date that used to be thrown away, it's giving the women in the villages income during months that they usually wouldn't have had the income after they harvest the date 
For months, they had nothing, you know, no income coming mm-hmm. in. Now, all of a sudden, they have a whole new uh, opportunity. And so looking at how by upcycling, we're not only improving the sustainability of of beauty from an ingredient supply chain, but we're giving women income that they or opportunity they didn't have, right, to, to change their mm-hmm. life. So that's on the sourcing side. And then the formulating, removing the water. Wow. Trying to find a third-party manufacturer who is willing to make our products that are as chemical and preservative-free as the most organic of your food, food grade, waterless. I mean, most third-party manufacturers didn't want to work with us. Mm -hmm. They would hear my vision and they'd be like, she's crazy. Right. You need you need to dump all this, you know, shitty chemicals in there. But you know why? Because there's their manufacturing supply lines are so infested with bugs that unless you drop a ton of preservatives in there, your product is coming off that line. Contaminated. Contaminated. And you know how we know that? Because half of our inventory on our first run we had to throw away. Oh my God. Things that never get micro issues, like really hard, like you have to try, like an oil or a salve or a bomb. That's an anhydrous product. To get contamination in there is really difficult. And we literally had to throw away half our inventory. Wow. So, what does that tell you? The standards are just not there. They don't look at right. it the way we look at We look at it as we're a food company reinventing beauty. I think another interesting thing that you have kind of turned or changed the paradigm on is, you know, the beauty industry is historically really secretive, secretive about proprietary this, no one wants to talk about their vendors, although it's a very small incestuous pool on the supply side. But, you know, you've, what has been normally considered proprietary information, you've actually collaborated with people who might be perceived to be competitors. You also have open sourced your formulations, so to speak, or recipes um, to consumers. And you're also incredibly generous with information. And I know that this uh, sort of goes to a larger cause that you believe in and is also sort of fundamental I think kind of just the person you are, but the DNA of Lolly. But why do you think that's important? I think to be a change maker, you need to be able to communicate on all levels how change is made. And I think being secretive or competitive is really just a selfish attempt to money grab. And well, I'm not going to but listen, Lolly, it is a B Corp, but we are, you know, a for-profit business. I have mm-hmm. shareholders and investors that are looking for their, you know, return on their investment. But one of the reasons we became a B Corp is that part of our mission and our obligation to our shareholders is this altruistic approach and and commitment to impact on many levels. And I think that the only way we're going to be able to deliver on that is if we actually share notes and learn from others. Because I may have part of the solution, someone else may have another part of the solution, and together the two sides of the orange come together to make one orange, Mm -hmm. right? If I just hold on to my piece, I'm insular, and things are changing so rapidly. Right. So I think it's important to have that dialogue. And second of all, I come from sort of an old school approach that when you educate 
the consumer on the industry, everyone rises, everyone wins. And I also think that, you know, the uh, the issues in the industry that you're tackling are really big issues. You know, the beauty industry is one of the largest polluters of plastic in the world. So you, Tina Hedges at Lolly, can't single-handedly change that. It's going to take the entire industry. And And truthfully, I think that there are some very well-meaning leaders in some of these big beauty companies that think they're doing well. But again, they're so busy. They're running from meeting to meeting. They trust their advisors who are supposed to be experts, whether they're suppliers or internal um, development people, to tell them the facts. And they don't have time. I, I literally spend my fun time reading Harvard um, research papers on compostable materials mm-hmm. and things like that. I really dig into the details. I personally love it. But most beauty execs don't have that time, right? So if their supplier says, oh, this is a PLA tube and it's made from sugarcane or corn and it's completely compostable, they'll be like, that's amazing. Let's launch that. Let's do it. Let's do it. And they don't realize that that is actually worse for the environment than um, some of the more traditional plastics, depending on, because people think it's compostable and it's not. It's, I mean, it will break down, but it breaks down into microplastic. So, you know, if you're so generous about information, you know, how do you marry that with kind of keeping your competitive edge? Because, you know, that I guess ties into why people are so secret. So, sharing with whether they're, competitive brands or other industry leaders where I source my garden compostable labels um, or where I source my food grade refillable glass jars, that isn't going to make the difference of Lolly being successful because they could find – they could get to that supplier. They just need to look hard enough. They just – they need to look hard enough. But um, they could get to that supplier whether I give it to them or they find on their own. But they can't – duplicate the heart and soul of our brand. And I think that's where brand and the emotional connection to brand is so important. You can create product. You can commoditize. I mean, nowadays when you look, it's hard to tell this razor company from that razor company, whether it's a pink razor, it's a blue razor, it's, you know... Uh, everyone is trying to get that. It, all the language is the same. All the websites look the same. Brands are losing. It's, again, become this commoditized factory of producing direct-to-consumer brands that there's a template. Right. And that template is just getting used over and over and over again. I think that I've spent so much time and effort, and maybe at the expense of accelerating revenue you know, quicker, but really developing the emotional component, the heart and soul of the brand. And I'm most proud of that. And I think that that is something that no one can steal from us. They can take our language. They can take our suppliers. They can try to duplicate our formulas, which are very difficult to duplicate. So good luck to you. And <laughs> um, But they won't be able to duplicate Lolly. Yeah. You know, I think that's one of the things that I sort of not struggle with, but it's, you know, it's very interesting to see these brands that, I don't know if they're brands or products, to be quite honest with you, Um, you know, because we both come from, we have 
a historical legacy of building brands. We'll put it that way. Um, that's a bit more traditional where you really sort of build brands that last. And I kind of think that, you know, we're in a time now where, I don't know, maybe the maybe we're in the time of like supernova brands where there is not this longevity and investors kind of play a game of hot potato and you hope you don't get stuck with it in the end. But I, I think that I think what, the way you've built it makes so much more sense to me because you really have a solid foundation that kind of gets you through ups and downs and, of trends and economies. And and whenever I have a moment of, of fear or doubt, which, you know, happens pretty much like 100 times a day, um, <laughs> I, I go and read customer testimonials. And I received one the other day, which was just so incredible. I've never seen anything like this. Customer had dropped our plum elixir on the floor, and it's a glass bottle, and mm. it's it's a fairly heavy walled glass bottle. But yeah, if you would like drop it from five feet above, it probably will crack. And they sent a picture and said the the top of the the bottle had cracked, and they sent a picture and said, "I don't know if I should be mildly proud or slightly embarrassed, but I have continued to use my <laughs> plum elixir and take the risk of glass shards." on my skin because I'm so obsessed with this mm -hmm. product. And I wrote back and I said, I I love your your um, loyalty to the brand, but please don't use that any longer and we'll send you a replacement. <laughs> and then that became viral. Right. And um, people started reposting and talking about it because they were like, this brand has the best customer service. And I'm like, it's not really customer service. That's just who we are. We really care about our customers. Mm -hmm. I care about Every single customer. And I think that goes back to one of your earlier questions, Kelly, where we talked about what did I learn from Big Beauty? You know, my earliest training ground was at Estee Lauder. And I joined when she was still alive, although quite removed mm -hmm. from leadership. Leonard mm -hmm. was running the ship. But her philosophies and her outlooks were really ingrained in, in the management team. And she would be the first to be out on the floor touching a customer. And she said, telephone, telegraph, telewoman. Mm -hmm. And so she understood the power of touching each customer and the virality of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that is in my heart and soul. Yeah. No one can take that from me. So we've sort of spent the time talking about how you've gotten to this place. Um, you know, next we're going to dive into how, from a financial standpoint, you actually brought the concept to life. Trend Minute, brought to you by big thinkers that aren't afraid to make predictions. Evolving influence. Now, while we've seen an influencer backlash in the last year, we think there's still mileage in online communities and peer-to-peer -peer selling, just not via sponsored posts. So one example in the UK has been the launch of My Beauty Brand, which is a kind of depop for beauty in which anyone can upload makeup looks using My Beauty Brand products and earn a commission on items sold. And it doesn't matter how many followers they have. The makeup for My Beauty Brand has been created with the help of London fashion students and taking a leaf from the Glossier playbook, future creative input will also be coming from that community. Now, we're also seeing brands incubating influencers. So, for example, Elf's Beautyscape and the Sephora Squad ambassador programs. 
We think this incubator strategy allows brands to use their budgets in much more genuine ways to nurture smaller communities of nano-influencers rather than just paying for an Instagram post. We expect to see this deliver a much better return on investment. As a brand, the relationship you have with your contract manufacturer is a fundamental part of the supply chain and your success. Happy Farm Botanicals marries innovation with old-fashioned customer service. Located in the D.C. metro area, Happy Farm Botanicals is a leader in custom solutions for prestige brands specializing in non-toxic and natural formulations. Their full-time in-house team works with brands from ideation to product development through manufacturing and fill. For more information, visit happyfarmbotanicals.com. So let's move on to the money piece um, because it's definitely a hot topic. I kind of feel like we're in the the world of marketing sort of billion-dollar valuations, which, you know, as far as I'm concerned, who cares what the brand is valued at? It's sort of what's the number on the check when you exit, (laughs) but that's me. Um, So I know that the initial fundraising for Lolly was a bit of a challenge. You had this white space opportunity that you saw but there were no benchmarks in the market, which I know that makes it very difficult for traditional investors to really understand what you're actually doing. You're also a female founder, um, which we know female founders, sort of especially when you are fundraising, capital is not as easy to get. And then there's a third factor, which I find sort of shocking, but your age played a factor in some of these conversations. You know, I would think that for a founder like you that has experience both in big business and, you know, on the entrepreneurial side, you know, to me, you'd be sort of an easy bet. Um, But that wasn't really the case. Could you share some of your experience in sort of those early days of fundraising? Yes, when I look back, Kelly, and I think that my first startup, which was in 2005, I built a $30 million business in 18 months with $4 million in EBITDA in 2005. And that should have put me in that cool club, right, where money should have been thrown at me from investors and said, you clearly are know good, what you're doing. know what you're doing, you're you're good startup founder, Let's, you know, support you. What other ideas do you have? No, that wasn't the case. And for one reason or another, whether I just was a bit too early, because think about 2005 was very Very early early. days in in the startup world here in New York City. I didn't have a mentor, you know, uh, someone from venture who was sort of like my guru who would open doors. And so I really was an outlier, And as time evolved, I became an outlier who was older than the prototype of what the venture world wants to invest in. They want to invest in people that are 30 to 35, straight out of Harvard or Stanford Business School, part of the cool club or Wharton, part of the cool club, and prefer if you have no experience and you come with an idea on the paper and you say, I think the beauty industry needs to be reinvented and I have the way to do it. And they're like, sure, here's $2 million at, you know, 7 million pre-money valuation. And then here I come 
a female founder with experience with Lollywood serious traction. You know, because you did an MVP. Before I did you an did MVP. The, it wasn't sort of pure concept that you were raising. And I would be literally sort of, my hand would be padded. This is so nice. I had one investor say, you know what I love about you, Tina? You're so relentless. You just won't give up. Isn't that cute? Cute. You know, cute. And another investor, you know, Tina, it's really too bad you have so much traction with Lolly and that you have so much experience. Because if you were one of these prototype founders that we like to invest in with no experience and straight out of grad school, we would have given you a $2 million check. But you're really just too old. Literally. I was told to get off of pitching competitions because I was too old or not pitching tech or, I mean, it was just really enlightening. And But it's also, you know, it's, I mean, it may have been enlightening, but it's also incredibly personal. Oh, it's very personal. And, you know, I've even had situations, very not me too, where um, some of my investors have said to me, oh, do you really think you should be on air or on, you know, media because, you know, you're not as pretty and young. Let's just put it nicely. They said it a little bit more harshly as, as I think that, you know, someone representing the brand should be. And you know, let's face it. I think whether it's from investors or consumers, there is this adoration and this putting on a pedestal of a very young startup founder that seems to be living the life. And we could think of a few, right? And everything looks perfect and they're pretty and they're young and they're vibrant. Um, And there's not as much reverence and respect for um, an older experienced founder, male or female. Mm-hmm. I think it's easier for males. Yeah. But um, but I do definitely think, think that's changing pushing. a little bit because I think, you know, we kind of have gone through this phase of this proliferation of brands that were created by millennials for millennials. And I feel like there's almost a, a glut of them. And millennials are also sort of aging and, you know, now they're becoming parents and what they care about changes. And, you know, I think from what I see, I think the opportunities really lie on the edges of this, both sort of to older demographics, sort of ignore Gen Z and boomers at your own risk, and also Gen, Gen Z. I mean, do you see it changing? I Because you never really stop fundraising. I mean, no, you're always I never, thinking about the next round. I never stop fundraising. And I think we should go, you know, it would be interesting to go back yeah. to how I did it because I think I didn't answer that question. But, yeah, sorry. Let's uh, go back. But, you know, just to say, I think there's some fatigue out there of sameness. And I think that the consumer wants to be spoken to and reached where they are. But they are also evolving. So you're right. Now that template of this is what a millennial-focused brand should look like, well, millennials are evolving. You're right. right. They're becoming parents or they're recognizing that, you know, they need to redeploy where they're they're investing their disposable income, right? Mm -hmm. You know, a $300 luggage that they maybe use once a year isn't necessarily the best use of their funds, 
even if it makes them feel like they're a traveler. You know, it's like, I think, I think that you, we're, we're seeing that fatigue. Right. And I think that you're seeing that definitely also in marketing spend. Right. It's getting more costly to reach the customer. I mean, how long did it take you to raise that sort of seed round? So, and and yeah. what what connected um, with yeah. the investors ultimately? So my my seed round took me. Let's. I started trying to raise that in about September of 2016, and didn't successfully raise it until March of 2017. And I think I must have spoken to about 300 investors. I mean, it was everywhere I would go, I would ask anyone I knew, do you have three people that I, you know, I could talk to about raising money? And I would get passed from one person to the next. Um, It just didn't feel sexy the right way. It just wasn't... um, and I think also I was super early to be talking about like zero waste beauty. Mm-hmm. No one really cared in, you know, 2016, right. 2017. So I finally raised that round by finding a lead in, investor, a family office. So I've been very successful with family offices. And part of that I think is that they tend to have a longer term view on return on capital. And they also tend to be uh, very focused on sort of an ethos around their investment Mm -hmm. portfolio. So a certain percentage of the money needs to be towards sustainable brands or making a difference in the world or, you know, so there's, there's sort of a moral compass Mm -hmm. that comes in, which is really great. And then I, I wrapped around that a few angel strategic investors. And then my second round seed round, again, it took me about four to five months and a few of my current investors came back into that round, but I found a media company that had a family office and a global multinational media company. And they were focusing really on beauty brands Mm -hmm. and loved the sustainability mission. And then my last round that I just completed um, last week, actually. Congratulations. Thank you. Which was very, very, very difficult because now we're in that gray zone of we have traction. We have metrics, but we're not yet at that, you know, two to five million AR, right? Um, But there's also been significant changes kind of in the marketplace. So when you launched, you launched as a D2C brand and it seemed like capital was just being thrown at D2C concepts. And then all of a sudden you have D2C brands that are now sort of going from D2C to more traditional third party or branded stores. and and then you had kind of this focus on growth at all costs that seemed to switch overnight with the implosion of WeWork. And it went from growth, growth, growth to like, what are your unit economics? Full stop. hundred percent. And I've seen that even with our our investors is there's there's not a lot of muscle memory in, right. in this, right? <laughs> so they don't remember what they were sort of holding my feet to the fire about um, previously, but in in the beginning, they were very much like, why would you even consider going into wholesale? Like that isn't where the money is, direct to consumer. And and they really pushed back on me. And then all of a sudden it was like, wait, how come you didn't open a, a, in wholesale yet? And, and then the same thing about marketing spend. 
just get growth, just get revenue. And then all of a sudden it was like, but why are you doing a sampling campaign, which by the way, got us 28,000 emails and skincare profiles and, you know, a, a really nice return customer. But yeah, the unit economics of that sampling campaign you know, weren't profitable. But you're also an individual founder. So you have no one to sort of gut check these things. Or when you have those conversations, you're like, am I crazy? They did say that. <laughs> like you're, you know, you're kind of a, 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 as a single founder, sort of how does that sort of impact the dynamic? I, I've debated this whole situation of do you need to have co-founders or be a single founder? On the one hand, it can be incredibly the journey of a founder is very lonely to begin mm -hmm. with. But to be a single founder, it's really isolating because in those dark moments of the moon, right, um, you, you know, you're like, you know, I think I'm moonwalking and I'm about to like spin into the galaxy. Is anyone there on the other <laughs> side of the radio? And, and you just feel so bereft, even if you surround and I have a, a really robust group of advisors, but you know, they parachute in and out for the most part, and they don't have the full context, and they're not in the trenches with me. Right. So that's really scary. On the other side, if I had a co-founder, there's eventually always a divorce. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look what just happened. Look at what just happened with Away. Yep. You know, and um, someone always gets pushed out, and. At least I don't have to worry about that. Yeah. If someone gets pushed out, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> so there's one there's one last thing that um, that I want to talk about because it is you know probably one of the first decisions that you needed to make. But um, you know you had alluded to before that Lolly was founded as a B Corp, and um, there's some interesting statistics. So in 2012, there were 300 companies globally that were B Corps. As of last year, that's gone up to 2,500, which when you think about it is still a relatively small number. But there was a study done by Accenture that said 64% of consumers find brands that actively communicate their purpose more attractive than those that don't. And another study that said certified B Corps grow 28 times faster. So a couple of questions. One, like what is it take to become a B Corp? Because I think it's becoming a little bit more common, but I'm not sure people understand the nuances of what it really takes. You know, and the other is, you know, one of the largest certified B Corps is um, the Brazilian beauty company, Natura. You know, do you think that purpose is going to be a larger factor kind of from a forget about sort of marketing and the consumer, but just sort of um, in a business sense in the future? I think purpose is everything. I think that the consumer needs less stuff in their life and will con as we evolve, I think as products, whether they're tech products or they're consumables, as they become more um, efficient and multifunctional, we will pare down our regimen. I mean, just look at our wardrobes. You know, nowadays with an amazing pair of black leggings and a couple shirts or sweaters, you have, you know, 10 different outfits, whereas we used to have a closet full of singular items, you know, that we would wear. And I just think that we're paring down as um, an ecosystem. And so as a consumer is sifting through choices to align themselves with a purchase that has purpose, 
is so much more meaningful and important. And also, we are collectively in a mindset of we all have shared responsibility to this planet. And if I look at people that I admire, you know, Anita Roddick was really one of the first in the beauty industry to bring purpose into the conversation. And she did such a, and think about that. That was the early, 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 early. And Lush as well. And Lush. Lush has done a great job too. I really admire them. But I think that, um, you know, again, that's where I get so, do do we really need another double-sided mascara that, you know, is in a flashy pink container and, you know, has an influencer as the celebrity Mm -hmm. spokesperson and then we sell through you know, billion units of that. And then, you know, but what does that do? And then two months later, no one cares about that brand anyway, right? But I also, you know, I also think um, just from kind of a more macro level, I think we're also in a time where I think a lot of people feel that government is failing us. And I think, you know, there was, there was also a time where businesses were more connected to their communities and were more involved in making an impact. And at some point, probably in the 70s, 80s, that shifted to a focus on profits and shareholders. And I sort of feel like this movement or growth to B Corps is really a little bit of companies needing to be more accountable and being part of the solution because government isn't getting us there anymore. Do you think that that is part of the equation? I think that's a very interesting insight. I had never framed it that way, but I think you're right. I look at our journey in becoming a B Corps. When I set up Lolly, it was just a Delaware core. And then um, I raised money. And then I went back to my investors and said, we're going to shift into a PBC, a public benefits corporation. And so I had to get the board approval and all my shareholder approval because what that meant is there I I literally have a responsibility to meet our mission of sustainability. And that can precede my obligation on a fiduciary duty. Mm-hmm. So it shifts the conversation. And not every investor w- wants that um, sort of dynamic. They'd rather make sure you're meeting their, you know, profit and revenue right. metrics, right? So, so for example, for me in a very literal way, that could mean that I say, yes, I know that package is going to cost us more money and our gross margin may go down, but it's better to meet it meeting our criteria for sustainability. And right. therefore I'm making that decision. And I have the authority to do that. Interesting. Right changes the conversation and the dynamic. You know, this has been such an interesting conversation. You know, I think just in wrapping up, is there one piece of information that you would sort of pass forward, if you will, that was either given to you or that you've learned um, that you think could make kind of a fundamental positive change in another entrepreneur's journey? There's so many uh, pieces of advice or insights that I could share. It's hard to boil it down to one. Maybe that's another right. discussion. That's a whole other, whole other episode. Discussion. <laughs> um, but I think that what I would say is, well, first of all, 
I recently was told that there are three R's to being a startup founder. You need to be resilient, resourceful, and relentless. And I think you have to ask yourself if you have all three of those R's and Mm -hmm. be really honest because one is not enough. It's great if you're resourceful, but if you're not relentless, you're not going to get the outcome you want. And you definitely need resilience. I mean, I have been pushed down, like literally like, you know, gobsmacked and I've had to pick myself up and not let it affect me and brush it off and keep going. And the, you know, I just think that it's the combination of those three R's. It really impacted me when I heard that. And I was like, yes, I definitely have those three R's. There's no doubt about it. That doesn't mean I'm going to be successful, but I know that at least I'm starting from a good place. So that's the first thing I would ask yourself to rate um, whether you really have those three R's. And that's part of your core DNA. And the second thing I would say is that, is this coming from a pure place? Is it really your dharma? And um, a very long time ago, someone said to me, you know, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you realize your soul mission. And I, throughout my life, added a third to that. So it's the day you are born the day you realize your soul mission, and then the day you decide to do something about it. And those are the three most important days of your life. And if this idea to start a company or be a founder is more of a vanity play or more about a money grab, walk away. So Tina, we started the our conversation um, with sort of a one-word synopsis. And you said for you that it's a matter of trash. Why? What does that mean? So for me, Kelly, when I look at the beauty industry, you know, the $592 billion global beauty industry and realize that they are contributing to 192 billion package units in landfills a year. Think about that. Most of that packaging is plastic. And by 2050, there'll be more plastic in the ocean than fish. And then add to that, that they're formulating products that are 80 to 95% water. But by 2025, 1.8 billion people in the universe will be affected by water scarcity. And then let's add all the chemicals you're dumping into products. And women are exposed to hundreds of toxic chemicals a day through their beauty regimen. So when you look at the totality of that, to me, that's just plain old beauty trash. Thanks, Tina. Thanks, Kelly. For Tina and Lolly Beauty, it's a matter of trash. She's holding herself, the industry, and other brands to a higher standard of doing business that isn't only about profitability. She's stirring up conscious change in the process. Tina's created a self-imposed accountability structure for her business practices and her supply chain because government oversight is just not moving fast enough. Regardless of where your views lie on the political spectrum, consensus can usually be reached around the belief that the government is broken in many respects. I think the path forward is going to be up to big thinkers and businesses big and small to force change. Business culture needs to move past the myopic focus of shareholders and returns to a focus on stakeholders, the employees, 
community, and yes, investors. The private sector has the ability, and one might argue the responsibility, to drive change, believe in impact, and nurture their communities. The world needs more purpose-led leaders like Tina Hedges and brands like Lolly to show purpose and profit are not mutually exclusive. Doing good can be good for business. So in the end, it's a matter of sustainability. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter LLC, copyright 2020. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media at Beauty Matter Official. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Connect.